three things that you need essentially uh you can you can get along with one of them barely if you have two things it's good if you have all three that's great um namely the one thing is you can be an expert um if you're an expert in the field that's already a great start right um you could have the money if you have a bunch of money that's already a great start as well <laughs> you can you can buy the expertise uh, or you can have the right connections which is another hugely important piece Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. Now today we have another great guest on the podcast, Victor Hagrafa, and I am sure I slaughtered his last name, but that is my best uh, best attempt. So Victor, um, as you can tell, may not have grown up in the U.S., actually grew up in Germany, or Germany uh, came to the U.S. for college, studied philosophy, um, but the, decided the field was too politically charged and so switched over to computer science. He graduated. Friend asked if he had ever heard of Bitcoin. His friend uh, told him some about Bitcoin and got him hooked on that around 2017. Studied it, came up to speed. Um, his friend want do or him and his friend want to do something in the area. Went to Vancouver, created an app. Um, our business owners uh, let them know that the app wouldn't work for paying Bitcoin as well. Um, so did a few other things with Bitcoin. Got in the field of analytics and then made some connections in China. Project finished up phase one, but didn't move to phase two. Friend called him about a trading algorithm and got together with them. Put some money in. Bought or, or uh, brought on some experts and launched, uh, I think, what they're doing today. So, with that much as a quick introduction, welcome on the podcast, Victor. Wow, you really summed it up there. There's not uh, not much for me to say. <laughs> well, hopefully, there's a little bit more to say. Otherwise, it'll be our shortest episode yet. But no, <laughs> I summarized what is a much longer journey. Um, so maybe unpack it a bit. Tell us a little bit about you know growing up a journey, coming into the U.S. for college, and how your journey got started there. Yeah, so uh, growing, up, growing up in Germany um, has its pluses and minuses. Uh, quality of life is pretty good there, but uh, for a certain type of personality, it doesn't really work that well, uh, like the anti-authoritarian people. Um, and I always had a problem with authority, and, and this troubled me greatly when uh, it troubled my parents as well, um, trying to get a career going because I pretty much knew I could never work in a corporate environment just be hired by somebody and work there um not that i'm difficult to work with it's it's just that i don't like it um and so yeah, yeah I, i'm right there with you i you know i think there's a lot of uh business owners startups small businesses that part of the reason that they're doing that is because their personality is such a hey I like to do my own thing, figure out my own or chart my own course or do my own thing. And it doesn't always fit into the box of working for someone else. And so definitely understand and resonate right there with you. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, um, I came over to Canada to study um, philosophy because that was all I cared about, really. Um, I had some fantastic professors in my first year, which completely convinced me that this is where I wanted to go. Um, And I wanted to be a professor for philosophy. The issue was that, uh, as you mentioned um, in the summary, as time went by, I kind of came into the field thinking, oh, this is philosophy. It's all about reasoned argumentation. Um, I like to look at arguments. I like to read papers. I like to discuss things with people. Mm, Turns out that that was more or less a misconception about 
the kind of political environment that academic philosophy is in right now. Um, and more and more, I was I was kind of turned off from the field by just my fellow students and some professors as well, because it was very political. And the kind of argumentation that was going on was not, in my opinion, very good. Um, it served various political purposes. And I'm a profoundly non-political person, so I don't want to uh, be involved with that. Um, so then I thought, uh, well, shit, I'm in my... Can I swear, by the way? <laughs> Try and keep it PG. We'll let that one slide right. and the rest of it will be. <laughs> um, I was in my third year at the point and I was, uh, I was getting nervous because uh, if philosophy wasn't going to work out for me, then what the hell was I going to do? Um, so I, I took more science classes, computer science, statistics, um, and I greatly enjoyed those. But by the time I graduated, I had a philosophy degree and nothing else. And I could say that I could do, you know, computer science, but on paper, I just didn't look very good, I think. Um, and that's another reason why I eventually decided to um, go independent because really I had no other choice. <laughs> um, so, uh, so if you don't have a backup plan, I think that's a good position to be in, especially if you're just fresh out of university. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, after I, I finished my studies, uh, I then went to other universities, University of Washington, and I briefly spent a summer a semester at, at Harvard, which was a great experience. Um, after that, I, I went back to Germany um, and was kind of lost. I didn't really know what to do. I, on paper, I looked terrible. And I, uh, I just uh, talked to my friend who was still in university at the time and he was studying mathematics. He introduced me to Bitcoin. I had kind of heard of Bitcoin before, but didn't really know anything about it. I thought it was, you know, the latest gimmick maybe. Um, it's still really to be now it's probably more legitimate than it used to be, <laughs> but I still think people in, in you know, the day-to-day -day are still trying to figure out what it means other than they see in the news that it keeps going up in value. Mm. Well, so in the early days, uh, a lot of people had the experience, especially in the computer science field, they had the experience of being introduced to Bitcoin and immediately thinking that it's a scam or that it's, that it's just nonsense. Um, and they, they read about it and they, they study it more and more and they try to figure out ways in which it's a scam. And over time, they figure out this is actually really robust and, and um, they become believers, so to speak, in the technology. Um, mm because no matter how you try to attack it or how do you try to, to look at it, it just seems to work really, really well from a technical point of view. Um, that's not to say that the price volatility and all this kind of stuff, that's all the speculation side of things, but the technology side of things is what gets people hooked, at least in the technology. Right. Um, no, and I think that definitely makes sense. And, you know, so now, so you go back to Germany and you have a friend who says, hey, have you, uh, you know, have you looked into Bitcoin? It looks interesting. You take a look at it and say, yeah, it does look interesting. Picks your interest and you get into it. And I think at that point, now remind me of that wrong. Was that the point that you did your startup where you started to look and explore whether businesses could use it as a uh, form of accepting payment? Yeah, so I, uh, at the time I had no idea how startups worked or how businesses worked, nothing like that. I just knew I wanted to do something with Bitcoin and my friend was the same. So we just, um, I came back to Vancouver and uh, we just got together and we brainstormed a lot and we knew we wanted to do something. And I had just completed a course in computer science in Java, which is what most Android applications are based on. And so I thought, okay, I'll just start coding something. <laughs> and um, so I started creating this prototype um, and my friend uh, was, going around local businesses and, and asking some of his contacts and saying, well, you 
Are you interested in Bitcoin? Are you interested in, in using this as a payment method? Perhaps it's this alternative currency, magic internet money. Nobody really knew what it was, but a lot of people were, you know, a lot of business owners are, I guess, if somebody comes along and offers you something for free uh, that might help your business in some way, you're just going to say, okay, I'll try it. <laughs> sure, sounds uh, good. If it works out, yeah. great. I make more money. If it doesn't work out, you're the one that's out, not me type of a thing. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, the app um, never got into, it, it went into the um, minimum viable product stage. So it, it worked, but it looked ugly and it was you know, not very good. Um, and uh, at that, right about that time, the Bitcoin mania started, the hype cycle started. I don't know if you remember 2017, but it, it started to get really crazy. Um, the prices went up and up and up and people were just getting into it. And um, around that time, we, we kind of noticed that nobody wanted to pay for anything with Bitcoin because if you think that, I mean, if you have $100 Bitcoin now and you think tomorrow it's going to be $200, then why would you spend it on anything, right? Mm. Um, so that's kind of the issue with deflationary currencies is they disincentivize spending. So, so the whole payment app idea really was, was uh, not a good idea. And, and we noticed more and more trouble with the fundamental uh, concept of it, which was that even if these business owners now had Bitcoin, what would they do with it? Like they had to switch it over into fiat currency because presumably they had expenses they had to pay. They had to buy products. They had to pay their employees. So you, you have to switch it anyway. Um, and at the time that, that bridge between crypto and fiat was incredibly undeveloped. So um, it cost anywhere between five and 10% to actually switch Bitcoin into, into Canadian dollars or American dollars, depending on where you were. The ATMs were the worst. They were, you know, 12% or so. There were some companies, some broker companies doing it, but they had high percentages as well. Um, and uh, the, the way to do it back then was just to, uh, to reach out on Craigslist or <laughs> find someone you knew who had Bitcoin and you would meet them in a cafe and give them cash and they give you Bitcoin. So that, that was really early days. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of scrapped the idea of the payment app. <laughs> didn't really, didn't really work out. Um, but we still knew we wanted to do something in space. So what we did was precisely that. We just, we saw that the market was going crazy. Everyone wanted to get their hands on, on Bitcoin. We knew how to get Bitcoin. So why don't we just offer our services to people to get Bitcoin? Um, so we now, one uh, question just on that, because, you know, you have a way thing is a good idea. And I think, if, you know, maybe not, but I, if my under, limited understanding of Bitcoin is it was tended to originally set up to be more of a non-governmental stable currency that could almost be used as an exchange or for buying things and that. And then it almost kind of morphed into where people are speculating it or holding on to it because it kept going up and up and up. And so it kind of switched from its original or intended purpose. But as you're going through that, trying to originally use it as a startup and do it as, you know, people can use it as in, in order to purchase things. And I even remember when it first came out or there was one of the first shows and it was on Netflix or Amazon or something where people tried to live their, their live a month only using Bitcoin for any transactions they did and how difficult it was and how it really didn't work very well. But with all of that said, as you're trying to get that up and going, was there kind of a point where you're just saying hey this is not going to work with you know not enough businesses are using it or if they are using it nobody's adopting it or how did you kind of come to the term or determination that while it may have been a in theory a good idea when you tried to put it into business practice it wasn't working out uh i wouldn't say it was a 
a particular point in time, it was kind of a gradual recognition that this wasn't really where it was at. Um, and then also at the same time, this other opportunity came along where we, where we said, we can make way more money and we can make money right away by just buying and selling Bitcoin to people who wanted to buy it. And our clients were mostly like lawyers. In fact, the Jewish community in Vancouver was our, one of our first uh, clients and they all recommend each other. So that was very good for us. Um, but um, the, I mean, to, to an extent, the, the debate still rages on. Um, as you mentioned, the original intent of Bitcoin was a peer-to-peer -peer digital cash. Um, but uh, the, the, the Bitcoin maximalists very much argued for a long time and probably still do that once Bitcoin is big enough, once it's universally accepted, once all that happens, then the price stability will happen. But if we look at other asset classes and other commodities and everything, we don't really see that even gigantic commodities like gold or copper or anything like that. You don't really have price stability. Um, so, so that's kind of, I think, uh, unlikely to happen. And, but, but people still hold on to it. Uh, I mean, El Salvador just, uh, just uh, declared it a, a national currency, right? Uh, under the assumption that it is actually a currency. And um, you know, I fall on the side of, of things where I say it's not really a currency. It's it's a some sort of asset. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. But so now, so you come to that realization. It's kind of creeping. You know, kind of comes at a over a slow period of time. Just saying, hey, we've tried this. You know, had some people initially adopted it, didn't work, and eventually came to the point that okay, the business idea isn't, isn't going to work out or isn't going to be accepted. So at that point, then where did where did things take you from there? Where did the journey go from there? Yeah. So like I said, we we um, we just hustled a lot uh, running around town selling Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin and making money off of the difference. Um, and uh, eventually it became so heated that we got turned off of that whole thing because we saw a lot of scammers entering the space. Um, people put their life savings into it. It was very it got uncomfortable uh, to the point where old ladies were asking us to put in, you know, all their savings because their nephew had told them that the zero X token was going to be the next big thing. Right. Mm. So at that point we were, we refused to sell anymore and, and it got too, uh, too wild. Um, so we got out basically around the peak and um, then we got into consulting because around that time, uh, Ethereum really came into the limelight um, ICOs went crazy. People wanted to do token offerings for everything. Um, and I, I remember one specific meeting uh, I went to at uh, actually the university's Bitcoin club. They had a guest speaker who was one of the founders of Axiom Zen, which had uh, which created the CryptoKitties, um, if you remember that. So that was really mind blowing because it showed to me it it it, uh, it really enlightened how how much Ethereum was capable of and what you could do with it. And that this was really an interesting future pathway to go. Um, and of course, CryptoKitties, essentially all of the NFT mania that's going on right now, it's all based on CryptoKitties, more or less. Hmm. So anyway, um, we became consultants. We, we gave talks at law firms. We um, helped some companies do their tokenomics we came up with all kinds of ideas we got very interested in stable coins we contributed some articles kind of to the to the general canon i suppose um theorizing about stable coins talking about stable coins and uh then um we we got into analytics so 
if you know Bitcoin, you know that it's kind of a, an open ledger, it's transparent, which means that every single transaction since the beginning of Bitcoin can be traced. Mm. And of course, there's no names attached to those transactions. It's just the Bitcoin addresses uh, that, are, that are openly available. However, based on a bunch of heuristic and statistical methods, you could group numbers of addresses together and you can kind of figure out what belongs where and the movements of the coins through the network. Um, and once you know that one Bitcoin address belongs to, for instance, an exchange or a person or a dark market, mm. once you know that, you can kind of um, you can trace it through the network and kind of make these connections and say, okay, these group of addresses probably belong to Binance or these group of addresses belong to this dark market. And we saw that there's a there was a need for that. Um, because as crypto was becoming more mainstream, crypto businesses, um, especially on exchanges, they were becoming more and more worried about regulation and KYC laws and anti-money laundering laws. And so they wanted to make sure somehow that um, the crypto that they had on their platform and from their clients was clean and wasn't used for terrorist financing, for instance, or illicit financial purposes. So they started to require these services where there was a bunch of companies, Chainalysis, for instance, was one of them. There was one in Vancouver called um, uh, Blockchain Intelligence Group. Um, they, they sold their services to not only companies, financial companies, exchanges, but also law enforcement, CIA, FBI, these kinds of places. Um, we became interested in that. And uh, through a connection of a connection in China, uh, we found out that China was very interested in this, of course. So... Uh, we were one of those, I suppose, startups that uh, that got poached by the Chinese, and and we we raised a bunch of money uh, in China, or our Chinese partners did, um, and then we flew over to China. We opened up an office in Shenzhen, and hired a bunch of developers, and and uh, developed a, a software tool to uh, to help the clients, the eventual clients of the company, which would include the government. Um, uh, trace trace cryptocurrency transactions and, and make sure that or, or at least increase the likelihood that these transactions weren't illicit somehow wow. um, it was a fascinating experience in china i was there for a little over a month um, and then our office existed there for about six months until COVID hit and then everything shut down and then our chinese partners couldn't come up with funding for the next round of investment so that whole project kind of just went away unfortunately but it was still a fascinating experience. Um, uh, the way business is done in China is very different than here. <laughs> Everything is based on um, connections with the party, and but lo local party. And um, our Chinese partners had those connections. And many times we had kind of a full day of work. And then in the evenings, we went out to fancy dinner places with these party officials. Um, and... Uh, they got blind drunk. They they drank a lot. <laughs> um, the way they drink is is they they force you to drink. Uh, they all toast each other, and then you have to drink. And they get so drunk that they go away and throw up, and they come back and drink more. Um, and they almost never discuss business during these meetings. But it's kind of building about building that connection, and then they just hand wave it away and say yes, we'll do it. It's no problem. Or like yeah, mm -hmm. you're you're in the circle now of doing this business. 
So now oh, yeah. one question, just to kind of fast forward. So now COVID hits and you say, oh, you know, it sounded like it was a pretty interesting business. It was gaining traction. And then unfortunately COVID hit and uh, things went away. So now you're kind of here, you know, the second time saying, okay, we've tried our second startup again, didn't work out. Now this time for different reasons, it wasn't, there wasn't initially demand, but because, you know, people or because of circumstances outside your control, it kind of went away. So then kind of, where did you guys go from there? Where did, where did your journey take you from there? Right. Yeah. So um, luckily, I think a lot of people aren't in this position, but luckily we were in the position where we just made enough money off of our startups to keep going. <laughs> so it wasn't, they weren't big successes. They kind of failed and, or it didn't work out or um, something else happened, but um, they, they, they just made enough money for us to hang in there. Right. Um, and I think that was really important because otherwise we could have just, we would have just had to stop at some point. Right. Um, so we, we got back from China, COVID happened, nothing worked out. Um, and then a friend called me who I had met in the crypto community here. Um, and he approached me with the project that he had been working on, um, which was a, a trading algorithm. <laughs> and I was, I was at this point, very skeptical of trading algorithms. In fact, I've written articles about trading algorithms and I've tested some of them that were like available. Um, Ge Gecko, I think one of them was called. And uh, basically my, my stance at that time was that um, trading algorithms rely solely on market that's in the, uh, rely on solely on data that's in the market. And my argument was that that wasn't sufficient data to reliably predict the prices. So my argument was that pure technical analysis was not possible in the long run because there's just not enough data in the market to make those predictions consi uh, consistently. Mm -hmm. um, and I was soundly proven wrong uh, by my friend's uh, ingenious algorithm, which uses a combination of AI and, and sophisticated um, mathematical kind of models mm -hmm. um, and, and execution strategies. And uh, yeah, it, it worked out really well. We, we put our own money in. Um, tested it out for a long time, saw kind of all kinds of scenarios happen and, and addressed those problems, um, founded a company um, around it to make everything official and uh, have, the, have it all be uh, secured uh, IP-wise. And um, then we, we started inviting our friends and our business network into this algorithm, um, which made a lot of money um, relatively consistently. And then at some point it became so big that we decided we needed to, this was getting a lot, becoming a liability just from a, from a regulations point of view. We can't just hold all this money from people and we're not licensed or regulated brokers or financial entities or anything like that, right? Um, so we decided we needed a more sophisticated structure. So we got together with another Vancouver company, Hoovist, um, who had all the licenses. They were, they were fund administrators, mm -hmm. wealth managers, um, and they created an offshoot fund uh, that they own and we license the software out to them um, and we're doing the same thing in the British Virgin Isles right now and possibly in the Middle East so uh, the, the company our company by the way is, is Eon Labs uh, and and it's a uh, high frequency trading for cryptocurrency futures uh, it's a bit of a mouthful but uh, hey I, will, I, I don't know if I could I would be able to get the mouthful off every time but I think the technology <laughs> sounds cool and it sounds like a fun journey so no that that definitely makes sense and it's interesting how 
you can kind of, it sounds like with each portion of your journey, you learned a little bit more, you tried some businesses, they incrementally got more success. And then this, this latest business is even gaining uh, further traction. So that's, mm-hmm. that's definitely exciting. So well, now as we kind of walk through your journey, got a bit up to where we're, uh, we're at in the present, great time to transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of each podcast. So the first question I always ask is along that journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what'd you learn from it? The worst one I think was working with the wrong people. Um, but it's often impossible to tell who the wrong people are. Uh, hindsight 2020, of course, but, uh, the red flags were always there, but I chose to ignore them because there was always a financial opportunity or it was too tasty to say no, or, you know, when you're kind of young and hungry, you, uh, you definitely tend to take more risks and you are willing to ignore the red flags. Mm. Mm. But uh, one of the things I would say is that uh, if there are red flags, definitely be skeptical <laughs> because um, it can turn into a real headache later on. And uh, an older businessman um, who, who kind of uh, is a kind of mentor to me, he said um, that businesses fail for two reasons, essentially. They either run out of money or ego. Um, and I've had an experience where it was well, I've actually had both experiences, <laughs> but, uh, but the ego part is definitely, I think, even more dangerous than running out of money. Um, so that was no, and I, I think there's a lot of truth. And I mean, I think that, you know, it is, it is hard because you get into startups and, and people are, you know, the, by definition, people are getting into startups because, because they think they're smarter, can do it better, do it, you know, improve and the thing is upon what other people think and so you kind of have to have that personality but there is that point of you have to get people that while they are smart and intelligent can do things and are motivated and willing to take risks you also have to have that balance of personalities to where it isn't just you know ego driven and it isn't just you know people trying to show that they're better or smarter but actually convert it over into a product so i think that that definitely makes sense so second question i always ask is talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Uh, I always say you need, uh, there's three things that you need, essentially. Uh, you, can, you can get along with one of them, barely. If you have two things, it's good. If you have all three, that's great. Um, namely, the one thing is you can be an expert. Um, if you're an expert in the field, that's already a great start, right? Um, you could have the money, if you have a bunch of money, that's already a great start as well. <laughs> you, can, you can buy the expertise. Uh, or you can have the right connections, which is another hugely important piece. And if you have all three of those, then you're basically set. If you're none of those, then you might want to work on being an expert or getting the money or getting the connections. Well, I think, I think that's great advice. And I, I like how it's, hey, you might be able to get, get by with one, two, you'll do, do well, and three, you'll be successful. So I think that that's definitely... A great, or a great piece of advice for all the listeners. So, well, as we wrap up now, if, if people want to reach out to you, they want to learn more, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Well, uh, people can visit our website, um, eonlabs.com. Um, or uh, reach out to me. I don't really have Twitter and social media, so... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah eonlabs.com is probably the best way to, to reach us as a contact form and all right well i definitely encourage everybody to check out the website reach out to them oh, link, uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn works as well actually sorry 
All right, LinkedIn works as well. Every cool. either way, reach out to make connections, and uh, definitely is a, a great resource, especially if you're looking to get into cryptocurrency. So, with that, um, appreciate coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. Just go to inventiveguest.com. Glad to be on the show. Also, make sure to like and subscribe and share the podcast so everyone can find out about our awesome episodes and learn more. Last but not least, if you ever need help with uh, patents, trademarks, or anything else, feel free to reach out to us by going to strategymeeting.com and are always here to help. Well, thank you again. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. And wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you so much for having me. All righty.